Take your Bibles, please, and open them to Job and put your finger there. And then open them to Romans chapter 8. Put your finger there. Oh, no, that's it. That's the last one. All right, so just two. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. Um, I count it a privilege to be able to stand here before you like this each week and and open God's Word. Um, I appreciate so much that you take time out of your week. I know you don't come just for this, but our and that our fellowship and the other things that we do here are also important. Um, so um, I want to talk to you this morning about the importance of theology. So my introductory kind, of, and we're going to go back to Job because this all comes out of the book of Job, but I want to read a few verses to you from Romans 8 that you're probably very familiar with, but beginning with verse 28, um, but it, it kind of pulls everything together and we'll refer to it again at the end. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be, that's, that's the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, and we are, accounted, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I uh, um, am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I wanted to read these, this wonderful passage here in Romans 8. It's like the highlight of the entire book, and Romans is one of the, the highlights of the entire New Testament it's interesting to get these theologians around and they all say, this is my favorite book, you know, and then this is my favorite passage out of the book. And and uh, as if I don't read those other things, I just like this one. I don't know how that works. But but th- this passage shows us a couple things. One, it shows us that there's an everlasting purpose that God's working on. 
And that's part of what he says here. The other thing it kind of shows us, it doesn't say it directly, uh, doesn't say it as directly as it does this this eternal purpose, but it, it implies to us that there are going to be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. If that was not the case, Paul, the writer of this, would never have mentioned those things. He, he puts those things in there to let us know that if and when those or some of those things or other things related to them or connected to them or similar to them happen to us, that those things are not greater than the love of God in Christ Jesus. So if there was no possibility of any of those things happening, Paul would be superfluous in bringing all this stuff up. So let's go back to Job. The importance of theology. Um, and, and I guess there's a question, or a couple questions along with this. Do we believe about God, what God reveals to us about himself? Or do we believe about God, what makes us feel comfortable or good, etc., about ourselves? Do we believe what God says or do we believe what we like to hear? Kind of a generic form. But when we get down to the, we get down to the nitty gritty of it, we, we, all of us, regardless of our uh, intention, to some degree or another, all of us filter this book, God's revealed truth to us. We, we filter it through the lens of our wants and needs. We listen to that radio station, WIIFM. What's in it for me? So, you say, well, I, you know, I, I just trust, well, we want to, we try to, but then common among modern Christianity is this concept, and we're going to talk about it here, is this concept that, that we don't have really have to deal with um, objective reality. We can look at things through another perspective. Um, the standard has to be God's revelation of himself as received in the Bible. Or theologians call this special revelation as opposed to general revelation. And you can look at, you can, you know, you can, uh, it was a wonderful sunrise the past couple of days, and you can look at that and you can give glory to God and you can learn something about God's character by watching the sunrise or the sunset or how a mama bird takes care of baby birds. <laughs> okay? You can also learn something of God's character while you watch a lion kill and eat a gazelle. All right, nobody wants to talk about that part, but but it's true. I, I'm so old now. I when the nature programs come on, and you know the the mama lion's about to lose one of her cubs to the hyenas, I change channels, go watch the symptoms. I, I can't stand to watch that violence, you know. <laughs> so this is this is called special revelation. This is. You can't you can't get most of the stuff that's in here by looking at creation. It, it, it's special because God inspired men, and that word "inspired" is a theological term. He breathed into them. He inspired men to write 
about himself, reveal himself, about the world around us and about us. This, it's all true. This is special revelation. So this is the absolute authority. And if, if we reject it and put some other standard of judgment, like, well, how it makes me feel, or what some philosopher wrote, or something like that, then we're, we're, we're going to miss God. And our, our theology is important. If our theology is wrong, we will reach incorrect conclusions, and which will lead to incorrect words, which will lead to wrong doing wrong things. So when you read the book of Job, and probably everybody knows this, and I, I'm not going to, by the way, have time to go down through all of these. Uh, this is a big book, and I know that we read it into next week, too. So I'm, I'm giving you stuff ahead of time. And, and, and let me just put a parenthesis here. I encourage you to read this. And it, some of it, the language is uh, arcane to you. It's, it's, it's strange to you. It's not straightforward. It's, it's Hebrew poetry. It's a, it's a poetic book. It's almost like uh, a play or, or a theater production. You know, it, it's, it, it's written to tell this story, and the language in there is not the kind of straightforward language we'd, we would like to hear. And so because of that, sometimes it's hard to read. But I encourage you to read it. You'll get something out of it. And as you read it, I'm, I'll hopefully give you some stuff today. As you read it, you'll see, well, there's that attitude, and there's that attitude, and look what he's doing, and here's that coming out. And you'll, I hopefully you'll, you'll see some of these things. So I talk, if our theology is wrong, then we're going to have um, wrong conclusions, say wrong things, do wrong things. And here, the Job's comforters actually incited him to defend himself against God. And which was the wrong thing. And at the end of the book, you'll see that God corrects Job by talking to Job. And then he makes the comforters come to Job for their correction. Which is an interesting thing. I have time to talk about all that. That's just an interesting concept to me. I, you know, I get I get tickled by thinking about that. You know, what was going on with those? Guys? Hey, if you guys want forgiveness, go ask Job to pray for you. That's what he told the guy. He said, if you want to be forgiven, you ask go ask Job to pray. You know, I get the same kind of. I'm sorry, I'm so carnal. I get the same kind of enjoyment out of that as I did thinking about this guy dragging that rock. Because I know what it would be like if me, if I caught that rock, I'd be sweating bullets. I'd be trying to, what am I going to do? Well, you know, what's going to happen? You know, is this going to break something? And maybe I'll drive over it. And at any rate, I'm not preaching about the rock today. But uh, they caused him to, to, to defend himself against God. And because their theology is wrong. And we'll talk about that in a second. Elsewhere, that whole concept enters into every area of life. So, the Bible defines love. Let's talk about love for just a second. Let's use love as an example. The Bible defines what love is. I won't take time to go and read all those things, but we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We know John 15.13, you know, no greater love hath any man than a man laid out his life for his friends. We can read 1 Corinthians 13, and we can read all those things, and then it's over and over again, love is talked about in, in Scripture. But 
uh, Bible love is different than world love. The Bible love also talks about a father loving his children, and because he loves his children, what does he do? He disciplines them. And as a matter of fact, it goes on to say that if you don't get disciplined, you have no father. So, the Bible, Bible love is different than world love because it involves absolute truth and it sometimes has correction and discipline in it. Bible love is not an emotion. It's an action based on truth. Based on eternal reality. And Bible love can be willingly, sacrificial, and I wrote the word forgetfully in there too. Listen to this. Bible love can be willingly and forgetfully sacrificial. In other words, I not only sacrifice, when it's over, it's forgotten. (laughs) Only God can do that. Most of us, when we sacrifice, we want to be remembered for it. So we do what's right for the other person, not what seems to be the best for them or for ourselves, but we do what's right, and it goes back to truth. That's why sometimes Bible love, we can speak the truth in love. That's why Bible love sometimes has correction or or discipline in it. So we do what's right for them, not what seems right, not what seems best, or not not what is best for ourselves. And that includes up to, up to and including, like in relationships, that includes up to and recruiting, telling the truth to people in love, even if it means you lose the relationship. If you lie to someone in order to maintain a relationship, that's not worshiping God. Worshiping God has to be done in spirit and in truth. What was that? A dog or a wolf or something went by out there? surrounded by predators. Sorry about the joke about the hyena. I didn't mean it. It was just a... So, folks, think with me. The world has a theology. They don't call it that. Sometimes we we refer to it as a worldview, but it's, it's a worldview that's based upon some principles and they say well because this because I believe that then I'm going to act this way the problem with it is that the things they believe are wrong or misdirected so because of that they're going to make wrong choices so our theology is important I'll go back to this love thing here for just a second it, it enters in, if we don't understand what biblical love is, we're not, and, and, and get our definition of it from, from this book, from God's special revelation, then we're going to be tempted to fall into the trap of what the world says about it, and then we're going to make wrong decisions, come to wrong conclusions, say wrong things, and do wrong, do wrong things. I'll go back to my theme verse here. God's love transcends this mortal life. That's why there can be discipline involved in it. This mortal life which is limited by time because he has an eternal purpose 
in mind for each of us. And that's what Romans chapter 8 on through those verses that we read talk about. Let me give you some of the quick, quickly just give you some of the themes of the book of Job. Number one theme is, and there are, I'm sure, other things that could be said, but here's some things we'll talk about. Why do bad things happen? Bad things happen. Why do they happen? Number two, the sovereignty of God. Over and over again, we're going to see the sovereignty of God. I don't know how much I'll be able to refer to it, but it's over and over in, in there. And, um, and, and the principle of why bad things happen and the sovereignty of God, and then the third one, the justice of God. Those three things are interwoven in this dialogue between Job and his complaint about why all this has happened to him and his comforters who blame him for his problems, his three comforters, and then the, the fourth comforter who comes into the end, comes in the end and tries to figure things out, and Lucifer, because Lucifer has bad theology also. <laughs> you ever think about that? Lucifer's got bad theology. Don't take his theology class. So I wouldn't do that. Oh, yeah, you do. We do and don't know it sometimes, I think. So, the, the themes. Um, why do bad things happen? The sovereignty of God and the justice of God. Now, the justice of God, and I, don't, I, won't, I, I won't be able to elaborate on this, but you can think about it as you read through this. The justice of God is best displayed not in Job being restored. Because we know at the end Job got more children and got all his stuff back. The justice of God is best displayed in what I mentioned earlier, that his comforters had to come to him for forgiveness. Hmm. Now, Job's friends had a wrong worldview or theology. Satan had a wrong worldview or theology. And Job, to a degree, was forced into, in, during his weakest moments, and when he was vulnerable, into trying to defend himself against this. And he, to some degree, had wrong theology also, which is what God corrected at the end. So, uh, let's hit some of the main principles here. Number one, Job was righteous. Chapter one, verse Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and one who turned away from evil. That's a pretty straightforward statement. One eight, chapter 1, verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, If you consider my servant Job, there's none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Chapter 2, verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then I'll just throw this one in. Um, let's see. Verse 10, it says, In all this, chapter 2, verse 10, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Actually, it's a bigger statement. Let me read the bigger statement. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? That's what he answers back his wife when his wife says, why don't you just curse God and give up? Curse God and die. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So not only when he was blessed was he a righteous man, but after he was destroyed, he still didn't sin and speak out against God. So Job was righteous. And by the way, God agrees. And Lucifer agrees. And then the Bible tells us they all three agree that Job was a righteous man. You say, how does Lucifer agree? Well, if you read that, you'll find out that he says, he didn't, he didn't argue that Job was unrighteous. He just said he's only righteous because you protect him. Number two, here's the second main point. His friends accused him of sin. Now, again, there's lots of, you know, 42 chapters here. So I'm just going to pick a couple of examples. Read this. It's, you know, it's, it's good literature. Anyway, so uh, let me read to you just a couple passages here. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Uh, you, you might, as you're reading this, you might think how you might phrase that. Okay? He goes on to say, Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against me, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then you will then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days would be very great. So he says basically to Job, God's righteous, and your children must have sinned, and that's why God killed them. That's what he's saying there. He also says that everything you're talking about is just a blowing a bunch of hot air. I shouldn't have given you that terminology. That's kind of was your assignment. Chapter 11. And then he tells Job, you know, you need to repent. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Wow. You picture this guy. At this point, as best we understand it, he's lost his family. And he goes on later to say his brothers and sisters are estranged to him. And when the end of the book, they all come back. <laughs> Isn't that the way it works? So his brothers, all his family was gone. He was alone. He had no, he'd lost all his children. His wife apparently turned against him. Although, I don't know how all that works out in the end, but she's gone. 
And, and not only has he lost all his family and all of his possessions, but he's lost his health until his whole body was broken out in painful boils. And you've got some guy coming and saying to him that the punishment that you're getting is less than your guilt deserves. Say, well, they shouldn't have said those things. Folks, if we're not careful, we say those things or think those things on a regular basis. It can be just a simple thing of someone running out of gas alongside the road and we go by and we say, man, they didn't plan ahead very well. They need to learn how to plan ahead. And that's probably true. They do need to learn how to plan ahead, but you don't know what went on in their life. You don't even know, there could be a gazillion, I can't go into all those things, there could be a gazillion reasons why that person got stuck there. So our first, here's the point, our first response shouldn't be one of saying, look at me, I'm driving, I got gas, I planned ahead and I've got fuel. Our first response ought to be, I wonder if I can be of any help. And it ought to be of compassion and not judgment. Because when that, when that judgment comes out, it's because our theology is wrong. Now, let me go back to this question here. Why do bad things happen? Let me elaborate it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, firstly, there are no good people. There are redeemed people but they're not good. Okay? They're just redeemed. They have been given righteousness as a gift from Christ. Who he takes that's what salvation does. He takes their sin and pays for it on the cross. And the transaction is he gives us his righteousness and he was perfect. So when Father looks at us, he doesn't see us who are undeserving and ungood, he sees the son's righteousness. Perfect. So, um, let me talk to you about his friends. His friends got into this, and, and when you read this, I think their motives at the beginning were correct. They went to comfort, and they sat there with him. They sat there with him for days and said nothing. And if you've ever been with somebody severely suffering, they probably didn't know what to say. At least they didn't say something like, well, you, you can have other kids, or, you know. They sat with him in silence, and they, and, they, and they commiserated with him, and then he spoke. And when he spoke, out of his grief, which, which was wrong, and God deals with it, they reacted. And, and they reacted because they wanted to preserve a world where they believed such tragedy could not happen to them. They didn't want to live in a world where, where someone who was righteous could lose everything. They were afraid of that. They were afraid of that for themselves. Perfect love, by the way, casts out what? 
fear. And we'll talk about this here and here. It's going to come up in, in, a, in less than four minutes. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, so they didn't want to live in that world. And they were moralist. And they go over this over and over again. If you'd have done right, God would have blessed you. God blesses those who do right. If you do sin, God judges you. And you've been judged because you've been sinned. Now you've got some... And basically that's what they're saying. You can read through this and see it. You've got some hidden sin you need to confess. I think I told you the story um, years ago. And it'll, it'll come into play here in just a... Uh, in just a minute, we talk about faith theology, but uh, I, I remember years ago I had some uh, a woman come and talk to me. Um, it wasn't in this town; it was years, years and years ago. That um, encountered a woman at the grocery store. She hadn't seen her in a while, and and um, when they had last seen each other, the woman I was talking to was pregnant, and she lost the baby. And when she bumped into this other lady who she hadn't seen in a while, the lady saw she was no longer pregnant and asked about her child. How's your child doing? Seems like a normal question, doesn't it? And the lady had to tell her, well, I'm so, you know, you didn't know this, but I, I lost that baby. And, uh, <clears throat> and then the, the inquiring lady said, well, have you repented? And she said, What? You know, the first lady says, well, what? She says, well, have you repented? I says, I don't, she says, I don't understand. She says, well, the, the, the child died. You lost the child. The, the, the child could not have committed sin. So it must have been you. You know, I think I'm going to tell this story sometime and not get angry. But it hasn't happened yet. She blamed that woman for the death of her child. These guys blamed Job for the death of his children or blamed them for their own death. And by the way, when you read about this, those children didn't have anything to do with any of it. They were just there. Say, that sounds capricious. Well, it may sound capricious to you, but we read Romans chapter 8. God has a plan. I, I got I, I to fill out the rest of this before I get to my conclusion. All right, so... His friends wanted to live in a world, they wanted, they wanted this false security of believing that no bad things could not happen to them. And so they created a theology around that that says, if we do good, if we're nice guys, then God will protect us. And it's not true. It's just not true. And actually, when you read this, you'll find out Job says to them, he says, you guys all know wicked people who go to their graves in peace. Job says to them, you know wicked people who are blessed throughout their life and die in peace. And so Job challenged the reality of their theology. They didn't like it. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 25. And I, I know I think I've talked about this before too. It says, "For the thing that I fear comes upon me, comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. 
but trouble comes. This, is, by the way, is the end of Job's lament. He begins chapter 3 with this lament. This, look at all this stuff that comes has happened. And then his first comforter is Eliphaz, who begins in chapter 4 and, and talks with him. And though Eliphaz starts out talking, you know, uh, k- kind and graciously to him, it doesn't take him very long, and he starts getting into innuendo and, and, and trying to defend his worldview. But I want you to go back to verse 25. For the thing that I fear comes on. I was in a, I was in a, a, a service once with a, a world-renowned faith teacher who taught that the reason all this stuff happened to Job was because he didn't have faith. Because faith and fear, of course, are he says are contradictory, and Job feared this thing was happening, so he actually brought it on himself by the thing that he feared, and had he had faith, his children would have still been alive. Now, folks, that flies in the face of everything that's in those verses that I read earlier from one one and one eight and two three and two ten, where we said that Job was blameless and did right in all his ways, and that Job was exempt, so exemplary that of all the people on the earth, he says to Lucifer, "Have you seen my servant Job down there?" And that, so that, that was that, that was that faith doctrine. And that faith doctrine is just an extension, probably taken to an extreme of what these three comforters were doing. They wanted to protect their world. The faith teachers want to say, you know, you can, you can have control of your world. Folks, it's all about control. Why do we have to have control? We have to have control because we don't have trust. We don't have faith. We don't have faith that God's going to do good things for us, that God's going to work it all out in the end. So it might be costly. Well, it, you know, I, I, don't want, I don't want to lose these things that I've got. These things that you got are going to get lost anyway. You're not going to keep them. All right. So faith theology. Satan is an accuser. We see it in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. We see it in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. I already kind of read some of it. And, but basically, uh, and we see it in Revelation chapter 12, 10, where it says that accuser of the brethren is cast down. He's also a destroyer. But I want you to note that he basically has the same theology as the comforters. In other words, he says he, his, his idea of what's going on with God and Job is that one of two things, that Job serves God because God blesses him or that Job earns his blessing by being a good boy. And they're kind of intertwined and that's the same theology of the comforters. I'm here with me here in this. I'm here thoroughly confused. I'm in here just hungry and want to go home. It, 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 it is natural for us when difficulty comes to hope and pray it doesn't come our way. And, 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 I, and I'm not telling you you shouldn't do that. But just be careful that you don't lose sight of the ultimate goal that we read about in Romans chapter 8. 
more about Satan in just a minute. The end of this is that God adjusts Job's thinking. And uh, this, again, is wonderful reading. I hope you... I hope you read it. He does so by asking Job a series of questions. It says in verse 30, in chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord, the Lord, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. <laughs> I will question you and you'll tell me. You'll make it known to me. And then he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He says, who shut the sea with its doors? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? How many of you in here have commanded the morning? (laughs) Folks, there have been times when I prayed for the sun to come up. Prayed for the night to end. (laughs) But it just came at its own time. Have you entered the springs of the sea? I I, I can't read all these. Has the reign of Father, he says, he even asks him about the stars and, and says, you know, can, can you deal with these things? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Hmm. Until Job talks about um, the Leviathan and the behemoth. Or I'm sorry, God does. And he goes down through and talks all about all the wonderful things that he's made. Now those were, this was before we had this book like this. And I'll talk maybe a little bit more about that at some other time. But um, He related to Job throughout all of the things that Job could see in creation. He didn't even deal with great philosophical realities. He just, or, uh, or, or truth that's beyond our eyes. He just dealt with things that Job could see. And of course, some of those bled on in to spiritual and phil- phil- uh, philosophical realities. Like, have you commanded the morning? Do you know how much snow and hail is stored up? Have you ever seen the place where it's stored, he says. Until Job confesses, he says in verse 5 of chapter 42, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. A picture of true repentance. I despise myself. Earlier, Job was defending himself. So I hope you see kind of what happened here. Because there, there's some wisdom in, there's some things to be learned in here in personal relationships. You get attacked, what do you do? You defend. They attacked him, he defended himself. That's why I said it at the very, um, at the very beginning of this, his comforter incited Job to defend himself. And it, folks, there is, God is sovereign. And if we're going to put blame for things, we've, we, we, it's got to go past humanity. And eventually it will end up at the Lord. And unless we trust Him and know that He's got a plan, like we read about in Romans 8, know that He's got a plan. We're going to end life in, in brokenness and bitterness and despair. 
Job repents. One final point here. I told you I'd kind of end with this. Just a simple little note about Lucifer. He shows up at the beginning of the book and he's just a bit player. You know what I mean? He doesn't have an important role. How many have ever seen Star Trek? You know what I'm talking about? The TV show? Well, the Trekkies have this joke they make. I think it was red shirts. Because there's always one of the crewmen who shows up at the beginning of the show. And the only reason he's in the show is so they can kill him. Okay? So when they meet the monster or whatever else, it's that guy who gets killed. I, it, it, it was never the captain. You know, it was never those guys. <laughs> they got paid too much to be killed. So it was always the guy in the red shirt. You know, he had, you're only going to be in this show once, bub. So look good. Make sure you shave. You're going to be in the show and we're going to kill you. Okay. Thank you for the job. I appreciate it. So that's what Satan does here. He shows up. He does what he does. God knows what he's going to do. God knows what he's going to do before he does it. He comes in. He does what he does. God lets him do what he does. God uses what he does to do what God does. And, and he's just, he serves his purpose and he disappears from the story. And all the rest of the story is about these guys arguing about faith and trust and God and righteousness and all of these great magnificent purposes. And where's Satan? He's not even at the end. They don't, God doesn't even deal with him at the end. Now, there is an end. Not in this book though. And, and, and I just close with this. It just ought to show us, and there's other things we could mention along this about the sovereignty of God and the, and the authority of the devil, but it just goes to show us that God in his loving care is in control. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book. It's a big book. Sometimes it's hard to read. But there's so much reality for our everyday life. I, I pray you protect our theology. I pray you'll help us focus on you and trust your word. Not interpret your word by what the world says, but interpret the world by what your word says. And Lord, help us live righteously and honestly before you. We're, we're, we've, we fail. Your Holy Spirit will remind us when we get self-righteous, when we become moralist, or when we become mercenary, when we begin to think that you owe us blessing because of how wonderful we've been. We thank you for your faithfulness and for your word and for your grace. And if, Lord, we've been hassled and hurt by circumstances, if there's been pain in our life that we've been unable to explain, if there's been loss or disappointment, or Lord, even our own failure when we didn't mean to fail, I pray you'll comfort us 
with the eternal reality of your salvation and your overriding purpose. You are in control. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.